Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode six of the Essential X Lapsed, where uh, I guess if this was current year, this would be the end of our first storyline instead of, uh, you know, the end of our sixth. So, um, different times, different times. But uh, I do hope that uh, none of you are tired of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants because, uh, well, they're back. Or I, I guess that we can't say they're back because they never left. Uh, they're just going to be here for a bit. Now today, of course, is X-Men number 6. It's had a July 1964 cover date. The story is called Submariner Joins the Evil Mutants. Written and edited by Stan Lee with pencils by Jack Kirby. Got a new inker today, Chick Stone. Letters S. Rosen and uh, colors... Eh, probably somebody, I would imagine. Cover price, 12 cents. Now we look at the cover and, you know, it might not look... Like it's all that special, right? Uh, especially looking back on it now, right? It's just uh, Namor the Submariner, he's there. Or as I used to call him as a kid, Namor the Submariner. I, Sorry, I, you know, I'm dumb. Uh, but we see him on the cover, and looking back on it now, it doesn't look like a big deal. But this is actually the first sign that the X-Men are part of the shared Marvel Universe, right? That's uh, that's pretty important. Namor has been showing up in other books here, and we're actually going to get some editorial footnotes to other books in this issue. So I think with this sixth issue, the X-Men are firmly planted as a part of the shared Marvel Universe, which pretty cool. Now, let's open this sucker up. We open with the X-Men gathered around a table eating dinner. Now, we learned that the school chef had the day off, and so Jean had to pitch in to prepare the meal. Uh, I guess no comment? I don't know. I, I I prepare all the meals at my house, so uh, it's uh, maybe this didn't age well. Maybe it's just a sign of the times. Who knows? Anyway, the rest of the fellas seem to have uh, rather poor table manners. Uh, Beast is reading Advanced Math, one of my favorites. Uh, this is written by Simic. Uh, which is probably a misspelled reference to Marvel's other letterer. Now, Beast reaches across the table to get, I think, some sugar. It's a little, you know, bowl of something. Now, Cyclops takes this as a tremendous lack of decorum, and so he, uh, he blasts Hank's hand with an optic beam. Um, isn't Scott, like, constantly whining about how powerful and horrifying his powers are? And he just uses them to blast poor Hank's hand, who's just reaching for some sugar. Oh well. Um, now Bobby is about to chow down on a slice of pie, which he decides to make a la mode by using some of his own ice slag. Which, I mean, we, we really don't need to discuss the differences between snow and vanilla ice cream, right? I mean, Bobby even goes so far as to refer to the goop that his body just produced as ice cream. Come on, dude. Uh, now, before he could chomp down on the pie, however, Gene TKs it away from his maw, instructing him that, uh, you know, use a, use a fork. Don't be an animal. Now, Warren takes this opportunity to hit us with a little bit of exposition. He explains that mutants and homo sapiens really aren't all that different, outside of, you know, having powers and all. I mean, he has wings. Gene then reminds us that, hey, you know what? Maybe there are a lot of mutants out there that, you know, we don't even know exist just yet. And Xavier is pretty sure that this is, in fact, the case. Now, as he talks, he's reading the morning paper. We don't get to see the front page of it, so maybe we'll just assume that he's finally reading an edition of the Daily Bugle. I mean, we've established that the X-Men are part of the Marvel Universe now, so we can play along. Anyway, there's an article in the paper that asks, Where's the Submariner? 
and Xavier wonders aloud if Prince Namor I might just be a mutant. Now, as if struck by a bolt of lightning, Xavier now knows the X-Men's next mission. They're to find Namor and make sure he doesn't join Magneto's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And just like that, we shift scenes to Magneto. And you'll never in a million, billion years guess what he's talking about. Anybody? He is, of course, instructing the Brotherhood that they must find and recruit the Submariner. Now, Toad comments on Namor's strength and wonders if he might just be a little bit too strong for Magneto to control, which gets a bellow of silence from our Master of Magnetism. Just then, the Brotherhood is attacked by Cyclops. What? Well, no, not really. We just get a page of the baddies fighting a masterminded illusion of Cyclops. Whoops. Uh, we do find out here that Quicksilver can outrun an illusional optic blast, though, so uh, there's that, I guess. Magneto zaps Mastermind with a magnetic power blast as he hobbles over to his recliner. He then plops himself down and does something I bet you didn't know Magneto could do. Because I didn't. <laughs> he astrally projects himself out of his body to try and seek out Namor. Uh, let's try to no-prize this. Maybe this is something we can assume Astra? Remember Astra? Who won't actually be created until 1999, but was retroactively added to the Brotherhood as a founding member. Maybe she's helping with this in her, uh, you know, behind the scenes, behind the curtain here. I mean, her name is Astra. I couldn't tell you what her powers are, but, I mean, from the name Astra, Astral, eh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, let's head back to Xavier's, where, uh, this might come as a complete and total shock, but the X-Men are training in the Danger Room. Thankfully, we do not have to sit through a half dozen pages of this today. Xavier leaves Scott in charge of the sesh, and uh, he goes over and conks out so he can astrally project himself to search for the Submariner. And we watch as his uh, astral projection walks into the ocean and deep to the bottom of the drink. There, he senses Magneto's evil presence and decides to uh, retreat for a bit. He's just going to let his adversary do the legwork for him here. And so, we catch back up to Magneto's astral form, and he happens upon Namor's underwater kingdom. He pops his head into the throne room, or wherever, to discover that the Atlantean prince is throwing a major temper tantrum. You see, he's upset about his recent loss against the Fantastic Four and how Sue Storm just, uh, she doesn't love him. She doesn't return his affection. And uh, this right here marks the first time we get an editor's footnote pointing us to another Marvel mag. So definitely, the X-Men are part of the shared universe here. Uh, for completionist's sake, the footnote goes to Fantastic Four number 27. Now, Namor's having a fit, throwing stuff all over the place, and Magneto decides that he's far too heated at the moment to be approached about a working relationship, especially one that would see Namor in the subordinate role. He figures he'll just use one of the remaining Atlanteans to do his dirty work for him. Magneto approaches a weird mustachioed Atlantean to get this thing done. He commands the Fishman to convince Namor that it's in his best interest to join Magneto's Brotherhood, after which, this weirdo fishman can slide into Namor's Atlantean role as ruler of the Underwater Kingdom. And the fishman likes what the, uh, you know, the ghostly apparition of Magneto suggests, so, uh, he's in. Let's go back to the mansion. Xavier tells the team that they're ready for their next mission. Now, it's worth noting here that Marvel Girl's look and costume has changed a little bit. 
she's now wearing the cat's eye mask rather than the head sock, and her hair has been straightened. The professor speaks of Magneto's lonely island, confirming that he's been able to deduce its location as being 50 miles south of Bermuda, so I guess this is Island M, then. Uh, you'll know it's Magneto's island if you see it, because it has a, uh, well, like a three-story gigantic horseshoe magnet on it. I mean, he's not, uh, he's not hiding who he is, I guess. And so, before we know it, the X-Men and the Prof have boarded the X-Galleon and are sailing to the Bermuda Triangle. Angel does some flying about to look for Island M on the horizon, but can't see anything. Xavier suggests that uh, maybe Warren's eyesight isn't as keen as his brand new TV video camera, which is kind of a jerk thing to say. I'm pretty sure he's just bragging that he owns a TV camera back in 1964. And to which, uh, you know, I gotta say, I'm sure Jean is really impressed, Chuck. She is totally into you now. Anyway, Xavier has Jean TK the TV cam way up in the air to try to locate the nebulous island, but alas, it does not. So I think Charlie owes Warren an apology. Now, you want to hear something stupid? Mm-hmm. Um, now, rather than just having Jean TK the TV cam back down, Xavier asks Beast to retrieve it from, like, way up in the air. And so Beast climbs the crow's nest and then swings out of it with a rope in his mouth to nab the thing. Only, I mean, we know that Beast doesn't have the best of luck with ropes. You know, last time he grabbed a rope, it was actually camouflaged paper. And so, just like that, it snaps, sending him careening toward the deck below. Jean tries to slow his descent using some TK, uh, but he's too heavy, even though I'm pretty sure she's moved Beast around before. Uh, Bobby, thankfully, manifests a pile of snow, or maybe it's ice cream, for uh, Hank to plop into. After Hank lands, Cyclops lambastes him for nearly damaging the Professor's super-expensive and impressive TV camera. Warren heads over to Xavier to inquire about whether or not Magneto might be using a sort of mental screen to hide his island. Charles is quick to point out that there is no screen on this planet that he can't bust through, so, uh... Okay, dude, settle down. Settle down. Nobody's questioning your strength or your abilities. Just, uh, cool your jets. Meanwhile, back under the sea, Namor is approached by that fish man about joining up with Magneto's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And Namor brushes off this notion. Until the Fishman suggests that Namor himself might just be a mutant. To which Submarine is all, You know what? Why didn't I think of that? So uh, he is convinced in the span of a single panel that he's a mutant. How about that? Now, we did take a look at when Namor was first hinted at being a uh, mutant back when we did X-Lapsed Origins on uh, Tad Carter from uh, Amazing Fantasy number 14. A narrative caption that appeared in Fantastic Four Annual Number 1 suggested that Neymar was a mutant. So this isn't the first time we're hearing it, but it is still quite early, and uh, it looks like Neymar himself didn't even realize it. Now, the Submariner reflects on the last time he tried to team up, and an editor's footnote points us to his brief association with the Hulk over in Avengers Number 3, so yet another sign of the shared universe. Though, you know, I do suppose that Neymar being here at all is a sure sign of that as well. Anyway, Namor decides that he'll pitch in with Magneto, and so he heads to Island M in his sleek undersea racer. Upon arrival, Magneto is pleased as Punch to see him, and he begins to speak, until Namor hits him with a silence. So, a heck of a role reversal for all mags here. Submariner then takes a walk around the island to ensure he didn't just walk into a trap. 
Magneto decides to have Wanda use her feminine wiles in order to lower Namor's defenses, which, uh, again, no comment, I guess. Whatever the case, Wanda appears to be quite taken with the Prince of Atlantis, and she goes to tap him on the shoulder. But, wouldn't you know it, she accidentally does her hex finger symbol, which causes a blast of high-voltage electricity to shoot out of a machine right in Namor's face. So, uh, Scarlet Witch, screwing crap up since 1964. Namor manages to grab the sparking wires with his bare hands, but this knocks him down to his knees. Wanda suggests that this sort of jolt would have killed a normal man. Wanda explains that her hex powers caused the charge, and it seems as though uh, Namor's already got the hot pants for her, or I guess the hot trunks. Mastermind and Toad are just not impressed by the Submariner. He's just a guy in underwear, basically, with little tiny wings on his feet. Just then, Angel swoops in, so we can assume that the X-Men have located Island M. Magneto begins hurling some magnetized boulders at Warren, who is able to deftly dodge them, since... You know, his only danger room training scenario has to do with him dodging stuff, so he better be good at it. Namor then takes to the skies using his teeny tiny adorable little ankle wings to air wrestle with our boy. And he just hurls poor Warren all the way back to the SS Xavier. And uh, we have Beast, he's bouncing on the plank. So, uh, Xavier's boat has a plank. Um, you know, growing up on cartoons, I remember thinking, like, walking the plank would be a f- would play a far bigger role in our everyday lives, but uh, I guess not. Anyway, Hank bounces on the plank to get some air here, and he manages to get high enough to catch the hurled angel. Bobby then manifests an ice slide, which sends his bros whooshing back to the galleon. And I gotta wonder just how much this tremendous ice structure weighs, and how it didn't just capsize the ship... Maybe Marvel Girl was holding it up with a little bit of her TK, despite the fact that she couldn't hold Beast five minutes ago. Just then, Magneto's giant magnet comes alive, shattering the X-Men's boat to splinters. Xavier nearly goes into the drink, but Hank catches him before he can splash down. And it's really funny seeing Xavier just, like, about to get into the water. It's, It's funny stuff. Now, Beast treads water to keep them afloat until Iceman can manifest an ice cream walkway for them to finish their approach to the island on foot. Now, upon arrival, the X-Men find the island barricaded by brambles. Xavier just tells the team to walk on through them because they're obviously a mastermind manipulation. And boy, wouldn't it be funny if they weren't. Uh, But actually, they were, of course. Cyclops then spies the giant magnet and goes to blast it. Before he can, however, he's attacked and full Nelsoned by Quicksilver. A shocked Scott comments that nobody could possibly move this quickly. Uh, dude, you've literally fought Quicksilver in the last two issues. And you've literally been put in a full Nelson by Quicksilver in the last two issues. So, come on, man. Now, Magneto and company are inside a, I don't know, a fortified room of some sort. Uh, He begins to flip some switches to repower the giant magnet. Wanda pleads with him not to do so because her brother Pietro is still outside. Magneto shouts at her to stop her sniveling, which is all Namorn has to hear in order to know that he threw in with the wrong bunch. Nobody, by God, speaks to a woman like that in his presence. Magneto takes great offense to this and decides to just wrap Namor up with all the medals. Unfortunately for him, this results in the X-Men infiltrating the fortified room, or wherever. And just like we've seen in the past two issues, Cyclops blasts through a wall that Magneto is hiding behind. It's kind of become a thing now. Mastermind then drops a fog illusion to cover the evil mutant's escape. Angel informs the team that, hey, this is only an illusion. It's not really here. To which Beast says, yeah, but it's fog. So, illusion or not, 
we still can't see through it, so maybe calm down. Iceman decides to blindly go Iceman at this point, perhaps the first time that he taps into his Omega-level mutant power. You see, he manifests so much ice that it very nearly, literally, freezes Mastermind into immobility. He barely manages to escape outside. Before they can leave, however, Wanda proclaims that she refuses to leave her brother behind. Magneto's all, hey, it's your funeral, Tuts, and he just basically boots her back inside. So now, we're left with the X-Men versus the Scarlet Witch and the Submariner. Sorta. Uh, Wanda demands that they release her brother, but the X-Men ain't exactly feeling it. Namor then demands that they release her brother, to which the X-Men decide to attack. Uh, it's not terribly effective. A beast kind of just hurls himself at Namor and bounces right off his chest, and uh, then he punches him a bunch, and it's kind of like that uh, that meme panel of uh, Spider-Man punching Superman's uh, you know belly, and it's just like not doing anything. Angel then gets hurled again. That's kind of what he does. Uh, Namor then shrugs off the full brunt of a Cyclops optic blast. Wanda then hexes Cyclops into losing his balance, and it looks as though Namor is just about to go in for the kill when Xavier demands that he halt. He and Jean emerge from uh, wherever they were, and uh, they've got a catatonic Quicksilver with them. Now, Wanda is completely flummoxed at the sight of her beautiful brainwashed brother. Xavier informs the not-so-baddies that they've been used as pawns by Magneto. Namor, as you might imagine, takes great offense to such an assertion. The X-Men freak out a little bit, but Xavier assures them that Submariner isn't a murderer here. Uh, They've got nothing to worry about from him. He then releases Quicksilver from his mental slumber, warning that there will soon be a far bigger battle with Magneto. Now by now, Namor is wishing he'd never even heard the word mutant and goes to walk back into the drink. Meanwhile, Magneto and the rest have arrived back at that giant magnet. So, uh, I mean, the island didn't look quite that big. I gotta wonder how big it is. He then fires the magnetic pulse at Namor, who, it turns out, is able to overwhelm it, sending shockwaves back landward, destroying that magnet. Magneto and company then rush for a magnet jet and skidoo. We hear that Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch will be rejoining the Brotherhood due to a uh, mental suggestion or command that Magneto had implanted in them, another sign that Magneto has mental powers. And we close out with Jean saying that she's quite glad that the Scarlet Witch didn't wind up joining the X-Men because she's far too attractive. Girls, am I right? Uh, Well, that's where we leave it. So what did we all think of this one? Um, I gotta say, this was probably the best paced out of the last three issues. Uh, Issue four was just really, 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 really dense and long. Um, Five was a little bit better, but this one felt like it was a... It flowed a bit better. It wasn't... You know, I hate using the word chore. I mean, especially since we're reading comic books here, and comic book reading should never be a chore, but... uh, This one felt like far less of a chore than issues four and five did. I think Namor is just a a really fun character. Um, I I like his sort of, like, ambiguity. You don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. Sometimes he's bad, sometimes he's good. He's always just written to be very uh, complex and fun. He's a character that you either love to hate or you uh, you hate that you love, you know? It, he's just a real fun character, and the fact that he's here, of course, is proof positive that, you know, the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, the Avengers, they all breathe the same air, right? They're all in the same universe, which is really, really cool. That's one of the things that brought me to, uh, to Marvel in the first place, just that feeling that there was this universe that everybody shared, right? 
It's part of the reason why it took me so long to get into things like pre-crisis DC because the you know the infinite Earths really made me feel like uh, like nothing mattered, right? Because anything could be written away, anything could be explained away as being something on a different planet, different Earth, a different galaxy. It would give creators a lot more freedom and flexibility to tell stories that uh, you might not be able to do with the prime characters. Like you can you can kill Batman on Earth two. You can marry uh, you know Lois and Clark on Earth two. All those things that you you maybe might want to do on Earth one or Earth prime or Earth uh, zero, whatever you're calling the main Earth. But you can't you know upset the apple cart too much. You could just put them on a different Earth. That made it feel like things didn't matter to me. Um, it was just like, it was basically like reading Marvel What Ifs, which I hate. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Marvel What Ifs because so many of them feel the same, right? It's always like, how are we going to destroy the world this time? And it would always be like a benign thing. And like the joke that I've heard people make is like, Peter Parker forgot to brush his teeth one day and the world ended. You know, it was very, very silly stuff here. So. Seeing this, you know, smaller Marvel Universe just in its seminal days here begin to take shape and form is really, really cool to see and will continue to be really cool to see uh, build here. It's, again, the reason why when I started reading comics in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, that why I went to Marvel instead of DC. It made it feel like everything, everything kind of mattered, everything kind of informed everything else. You were reading a, like a closed system here and, uh, it's really neat to see that that started for the X-Men right here. As for the tussle with the Brotherhood, it's, uh, well, it's basically the same thing we've seen for the past three issues, isn't it? Uh, we've got Pietro and Wanda who are, uh, conflicted, of course. They don't want to be bad people, but they owe Magneto their lives, so, uh, well, they're going to be bad, I guess. <laughs> um, same as it ever was for the past few issues here. Magneto, of course, is Magneto, and, uh, Toad Mastermind, uh, they kind of slip into the X-Men wallpaper sort of a role for this issue, which is fine because uh, they're probably the least interesting, at least at this point in time. The story really is Magneto and uh, and the Maximoffs. Now, if we're judging from the uh, letters that Stan and Jack are getting around this time, uh, the fans of the day were quite taken with Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, and... Uh, you know what, that's a pretty good segue, I think, into a segment that I want to include on this Essential program. Uh, actually, I would love to include it on all the programs if these were still things that happened. <laughs> They're not, unfortunately. Uh, the letters pages here. Um, I do want to start by thanking the folks at the uh, X-Lapsed uh, Facebook group, 90s X-Men on Facebook, for their help tracking down these early letters pages here. Uh, our good friend Ed Moore actually came through with the first uh, five or so letters pages that were printed in the pages of uh, X-Men here. Now, being a fan of a certain vintage, I do have quite a bit of love for uh, the old letters pages here. I miss them tremendously, even though... Yeah, they're kind of obsolete now, right? We just uh, really don't need them. And anytime they bring them back, it's uh, it's kind of like one of those too cute by half sort of things where they're trying to evoke that old school feel, and it just comes across as having like no heart, right? It just feels like a like they, you know, well, you tried, and <laughs> it just doesn't really work so good. It reminds me of uh, the Marvel Legacy stuff, you know. I'm I'm looking at the Marvel Legacy Generation X right now over on Generation X lapsed. And it feels just so half-hearted. It's like, 
hmm, what do, what do old comic fans remember? Oh, how about silly house ads? How about letters pages? And then they put together this absolute half-hearted garbage to try to make it feel like you're reading an old comic. And it just doesn't work because it doesn't have that earnestness. It doesn't have that heart to it. But anyway, with, with my complaining out of about the current year out of the way, let's hop into the letters pages here. We've got two pages to get to because... The letters started showing up in X-Men number 5, which we discussed last episode, but we will cover all those letters here, and then we will hop into issue 6. Now, X-Men number 5 starts with a letter from Carl in Anchorage, and he considers the blob story that took place in X-Men number 3 to be wonderful, stupendous, and fabulous. He says that he was worried that the X-Men would be just like the Fantastic Four, and he's glad that that's not the case, which, uh... I'm guessing a lot of fans during the 80s and 90s had that very same sentiment. Though I guess, you know, Stan and Jack invite those uh, comparisons when they say that books like the X-Men and Avengers are in the, the Fantastic Four style, right? That does welcome the uh, the idea that, hey, they're going to be just like the others. Uh, next up, Marianne in Michigan wants to know how the X-Men got together in the first place. And so Stan writes about how Maura McTaggart died nine times and... Oh, no, no, that didn't happen yet. Uh, he really just promises that uh, it'll be revealed as soon as he figures it out, because he doesn't know yet. Eh, you know, I'll, I'll give him that for honesty, right? Uh, John in Pennsylvania takes issue with a letter that someone uh, wrote, I'm guessing in a Fantastic Four letters page, that opined that Beast is just a copy of the thing. Now, Stan cites the Beast's heady vocabulary as the difference between he and Benji Grimm. I think I might have started with... You know, one of them's a giant rock monster, orange rock monster? I don't know. Uh, Jim in Indiana. He loved how each of the X-Men started to get their own unique characterizations in issue three, which is something we did talk about on the show here. We started to see Beast as a brainy guy, uh, Warren kind of being conceited and stuck up, Jean uh, being the girl, uh, Cyclops being tortured, and Bobby being, you know, the 16-year-old. So... And that might sound like I'm making fun of it or talking down about it, but no, no, this is true. They actually started getting their own personalities there. They're not just, you know, faceless characters in these identical, almost identical costumes. It's It, it started to flesh out these characters out of costume, which was very welcome and uh, surprisingly early. I mean, it was only three issues in. Uh, he's also certain that this book will be a winner and will never, ever be canceled. So uh, come back to us in a few years. Uh, Miguel in Puerto Rico says that he will start an X-Men fan club, which is probably the first X-Men fan club ever in existence. So if you know or if you are Miguel in Puerto Rico, uh, well, thank you for, uh, you know, assembling the X-Men fandom for the first time ever. The letters page for Issues 5 ends with a special announcement. It says that starting this month, five Marvel mags will contain letters pages. Where it was previously just Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, now it'll be the Amazing Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, the X-Men, obviously, the Avengers, and Sergeant Fury. Also, the X-Men are going to be appearing in Fantastic Four number 28, which, uh, hey, we might just have to be getting to here at the Essentials. Hmm. Next, we hop into X-Men number 6's letters page, which talks about X-Men number 4, the seminal slog that introduced the Brotherhood and, of course, the Pretender. Uh, Freddy in Brooklyn. He wants Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch to join the X-Men. He goes so far as to consider Quicksilver to be the most exciting superhero he's seen since Spider-Man. Wow. Um, hmm. Uh, has, has he heard of the Flash? I don't, I don't know. Uh, 
Yeah, so people are very taken with uh, Pietro and Wanda here. It's uh, every letter we read here, they're going to have a lot of nice things to say about the Maximoffs here. Next up, Larry in Michigan. He loves the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which, you know, I've got some good news for you, Larry. They ain't going nowhere. They're going to be around for a bit. He absolutely adores Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. He says that he hated the art for the X-Men at first, like back in issue one, but he likes it a lot now. And, uh, hmm, Larry, 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 Larry. He uh, suggests that the that Iceman's name is boring, which, I mean, it basically is exactly what it says on the tin, right? He's Iceman, even though he looks more like a snowman, but Iceman is, uh, you know, easy, rolls off the tongue. He suggests that they change Iceman's name to uh, Kid Cold, with K, both Ks, like K-I-D-K-O-L-D. Kid Cold, because it just sounds snazzier. Thankfully, he was uh, never taken up on this, so, um, hmm. Next up, Susan in San Jose. She introduces herself as a humble housewife, which is kind of weird. Makes me feel like some of these letters might be planted. I don't know. Uh, She wants Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch to join the X-Men, just like, well, everybody, it seems. Uh, Next up, James in Pennsylvania. He considers X-Men number four to be the best Marvel mag ever. And he compares it to the works of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. Um, He states that uh, Marvel Girl pulled a boner on page 19, which I don't recall. And considering uh, that we did see her tucking the professor into his wheelchair, I hope... uh, Never mind, never mind. Um, He also loves Pietro and Wanda. Duh, everyone does. Last and, well, probably least, uh, Kathleen in Missouri. She loves Marvel, but... Hates how many words they cram on the covers. Well, Kathleen, if you're still out there and still uh, are tangentially into or maybe completely into comics, I wonder what your thoughts are on current year covers where you get the pin-up cover, right? You get the pin-up, you get the blank cover, you get the the pencil sketch cover, you get the 55 variant covers, you get the Wolverine as a baby cover, you get Cyclops as a hot dog cover. I wonder what your thoughts... I'd love to hear... Uh, the thoughts of a uh, Silver Age fan who was complaining about the covers back then. What were your thoughts on the books of today? Hell, what, are the, what were your thoughts on the books of the 90s with the, the holograms, the, the foil, the embossing, the, the chromium, all that good stuff? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Kathleen, if you are out there. Please feel free to write in, uh, you know, uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Now, this issue ends with a special announcement as well. Now, Marvel states that they've received, quote, a zillion letters which demand that X-Men be made monthly. That will not happen for quite some time, um, the late 70s, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Stan puts it out there. He asks if the readers think that Namor is actually a mutant. And he even goes as far as to offer a no prize to anyone who can make it work. So uh, thinking caps on and uh, get writing, you know? Um, I'm surprised that he's still a mutant these days, considering everything that's gone on at Marvel over the past uh, decade and a half. So that'll do it for uh, our letters page for both X-Men number 5 and X-Men number 6. We're going to be uh, making this a regular feature on the Essentials when uh, whenever we do an Essential episode. So I hope you enjoyed this, and I definitely look forward to hearing some thoughts on uh, not only the issue itself, but uh, but these fun letters as well. It's uh, it's great to be able to dig into the, uh, the, the gestalt, right? And to actually have some measure of first-hand, or I guess second-hand, uh, tone and tenor of what the fandom thought about these things. It's one of my very favorite things to do as a uh, you know card-carrying, certified, fake-ass comics historian. Um, 
I, I love knowing what people thought in, in the time, right? That's one of the reasons that I still will spend hours and hours and hours digging through ancient, uh, you know, pre, prehistoric internet Usenet posts where we can get, like, almost, you know, relatively speaking, real-time reactions to some of our favorites, not-so-favorites, and just some seminal moments in comics history. So this is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this little dip into the uh, into the fandom of the day, as well as the issue itself, where the X-Men are firmly established as being parts of the shared Marvel Universe. But I think that's where we'll leave it for today. If anybody would like to write in and talk about anything your heart desires, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can leave a voicemail at our little hotline. It's 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can join us on Facebook, 90sXmen. And for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the tireless effort behind it, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, tell a friend or two, and ask them to do the same. It would really, really help the show and really mean a lot to me personally. So thanks so much in advance. And also, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me today. It really, really means a lot. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.